Well, let's uh, turn over to Isaiah 53, and uh, we didn't get very far last time. We finished Isaiah 52. Well, most of Isaiah 52, the section we're going to look at today actually starts at the end of 52. But uh, let's uh, bring up the PowerPoint here. Get this going. Okay, so that's up and running. Let's share my screen here so you guys can see that too. Okay, well, here we go. Yeah, so so we're, we've come to uh, the mountain peak. Uh, you guys remember in 1953 in what was the ninth British attempt led by a man named John Hunt and organized and financed by a joint Himalayan committee. They returned to Nepal after the previous eight attempts and planned for three assaults to try to climb and get to the peak of Mount Everest. Um, anyway, so there were uh, two attempts that were made, and um, uh, the first pair was a, probably people you've never heard of, Charles Evans and Tom uh, Bergelin, and using a closed circuit oxygen system. Remember, as they get at altitude, they realize that they can't do this without oxygen. And uh, they got all the way to 28,700 feet on the south summit. And uh, within 300 feet b- before they could go no further because their oxygen system had problems and they had to turn around. And it was two days later at, that the second effort was made with the fittest and most determined climbing pair and uh, as uh, uh, as uh, uh, described here in the article that uh, I'm bringing to you, uh, they also used um, oxygen sets. And uh, by 11.30 a.m., they had reached the summit on May 29, 1953, by the uh, New Zealander Edmund Hillary, which you know, Sir Edmund Hillary, and maybe a gentleman that you've never heard of, Tenzing Norgay, who was a native Nepali. Uh, they went the south route. They paused and took pictures about 10 minutes off of the oxygen before Mr. Hillary got uh, loopy enough from hypoxia that he decided to put his camera down and put his oxygen back on before he uh, totally uh, totally lost all uh, handle on reality. Uh, but that, that, was, that was the day that the tallest mountain in the world, uh, Mount Everest, was conquered. And uh, there it is. Actually, that's not it. There we go. There we go. Okay. I'm going to see this at home. <laughs> if I can get it to behave itself. There we go. And boom, there it is. Uh, and, and, man, you can imagine um, just incredible, right? Uh, 29,000, 29 feet above sea level, the tallest mountain in the world. And uh, Mr. Hillary and Mr. Uh, Norgay were the first to uh, reach out. Some, there's some controversy about, you know, who actually stepped on it first. I mean, this is the, the Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin moment, like, you know, who. And, uh, and it well actually uh, Mr. Norgay actually wrote in his autobiography that it was indeed Mr. Hillary that uh, stepped on the summit first. But nonetheless, a great achievement. And um, and uh, we talked about that last week because uh, if we picture Isaiah as a great mountain range and uh, we have 
uh, I, I don't think had to turn back just yet, but we haven't quite gotten to the summit of our great book yet until today. And uh, we will reach today in uh, the verses we're going to look at uh, the summit of the book of Isaiah. And this is uh, this is where we get the clearest view of one of the main themes and points of the book of Isaiah. Uh, we've talked about him. He, uh, he's called the servant. And remember that that term is used to describe the nation of Israel early on in the book. And it's used to describe uh, a couple of different kings. But as the book narrows and goes on, especially as we get into chapter 40, we recognize that the servant is supposed to be Israel. It's a, they're, they're God's servant. They're supposed to be a light to the Gentiles and, and uh, um, God's special work of blessing to the nations. And yet, as we saw uh, in those first uh, few chapters of Isaiah, of, of the Isaiah chapter 40 and following, that the servant is blind. And uh, he is incapable, and, and he is unable to fulfill the role that God has appointed for him to do. And that's where we begin to see the camera narrow even further, not just on the nation of Israel corporately, but on one individual that would come from the nation. And, of course, uh, we know him to be the Messiah. But, again, as we come to this section today, we can't help but read this with New Testament-informed eyes, and, and we should. But again, we have labored to try to walk this through, to let this develop in terms of how the original audience would have received this. So this is not uh, this is not even Jews from Isaiah's day. This is the um, uh, the generation that has been living in Babylon during the Babylonian captivity. Uh, they're discouraged. They're wondering how long God's punishment will endure, or if they'll ever go home. And, of course, God has reminded them multiple times that he's not forgotten his promises. He will bring them home, and uh, that deliverance will come through a man named Cyrus. But as we've seen, uh, the the Jews are not just in need of a uh, political deliverance or a um, a regional deliverance from the Babylonians or the Assyrians. Uh, They are in need of a spiritual deliverance that will ultimately change their hearts and bring them back to God, and that's what Isaiah is about to talk with us about. So this is uh, God Delivers Part 2. Let's pick it up in chapter 52, uh, verse 13, and we'll look at the first uh, section here. Uh, Behold, my servant will prosper. And, And again, this comes on the heels of this section. Remember, awake, awake, get up, go, come home, be comforted, depart, all these all these action verbs, these calls to do things that we saw back in chapter 51. Listen, look, look, be comforted, pay attention, lift up, uh, don't be dismayed, awake, awake, get up. He, comfort is coming, right? Uh, hear this, and, and all that culminates in you know, why can we have all this hope? Why should we be encouraged? Why should we uh, have encouragement from the Lord? And that is because God's servant is about to act. So this servant, uh, we, we know him well. We, we've seen him before. As I mentioned, the camera has zoomed from the corporate nation down to the individual coming from uh, the nation. Uh, and, and notice the description of him. Look, look at verse 14. Just as many were astonished. Well, look at the end of 13. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. But just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man, um, and his form beyond that of the sons of man. Now, I'm going I'm to read this a little bit differently here. 
than your Bible. Thus he will startle many nations. Because of him, kings shut their mouths, because what had been told to them they see, and what they had not heard they now understand. Now this is interesting as we get uh, Isaiah's first description. How are we going to know that the that this uh, servant has come? And, and really what Isaiah wants to do is just give us a description of him, and that's what we'll have kind of helping us through our outline today. Uh, the first thing, he'll be unattractive. Uh, no, uh, uh, no front cover of Time magazine, most beautiful person of the year for the servant. Not at all. Uh, in fact, Isaiah is clear that uh, people are astonished when they see him. They, uh, he says his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. And, and of course, we're wondering if this is God's deliverer, if this is the guy that Isaiah has been saying is going to be the one to deliver the people, our first thought is, what happened to him? Because I don't know that, that um, Isaiah is being hyperbolic here in his language. I think he's saying this guy is harder to look at than anyone else people have seen. And, of course, Isaiah doesn't tell us why is he marred, why are they astonished, other than his appearance is so uh, atrocious um, and we'll have to find out, I guess, in later verses what happens. Uh, notice the description. My Bible, the NASB says he will sprinkle many nations. Uh, that's probably a, a mistranslation there. Better, better to be, to understand that as he will startle many nations. And that goes with this idea that, he, that they're astonished and he's got this marred and, uh, demeaned appearance. And, um, and what's interesting is, look what it says there, because kings shut their mouths. Okay. Why? Because what had not been told to them, they see, and what they had not heard, they understand. So, so here, here's what they're saying. They see this guy, and he's nothing to look at. And yet, the kings, the leaders of the world, are astonished, and they, they shut their mouths, meaning their mouths are closed in disbelief. And we say, well, why? Why would the kings of the world see him? And it's not just his appearance that's shocking, but what does it say? They will finally understand something that what ha- was not told them, but they now come to understand it. Right? Um, yeah. Just just look at this here. They're they're um, uh, the startling. Right? The kings shut their mouths in disbelief. Uh, they learn that this man is the hope for salvation. And apparently he's not a mighty king, he's not a great military leader, he's not a wise philosopher, he's unattractive, he's deformed, he's marred beyond human recognition. Now, now put your put your New Testament glasses on for a minute and tell me why is the servant in such a horrible physical condition? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and we're going to see that here in a minute, right? If we look down, uh, for example, at verse 5 of chapter 53, he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, right? Uh, The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourgings we are healed. So if we put together what we learn in 53 with what we just read here, that apparently the beatings, the scourgings, the abuse that happens to him were sufficient to render him uh, in such a state that people were astonished at his appearance. 
Okay, so he's unattractive. And and of course, if we uh, if we cross reference that with Psalm 22, that also describes the suffering servant. Uh, we'll see it again in Isaiah, or we uh, we've saw it already in Isaiah 50 verse 6. And uh, we remember as we read in the New Testament accounts, we'll we'll do a whole other pass on this next week where we work through the New Testament. But just to kind of wave our hands at it, you remember that uh, after multiple beatings uh, by Romans, ordered by Pilate, uh, inflicted by the Jews, Pilate brings Jesus out to the mob. And what does he say? Yeah, here, this is your king, right? Behold the man. And uh, and that what we're reading in Isaiah 52 is looking forward then to that particular moment where everybody is astonished at that. And, and of course, we recognize that the kings of the world don't recognize this necessarily at the crucifixion. But uh, Pastor Terry talked about this in a recent Romans message from Zechariah, where Zechariah, who's another prophet of this day, prophesied how uh, they will, at the second coming, where, where Jesus comes back, that the nations will look on him whom they have pierced, right? And they will mourn as one mourns for an only son. Uh, so again, we have this language here saying he's coming, he's not going to be the deliverer that we might have pictured, and then people are going to be shocked to find out that this is God's plan of deliverance. Okay, so he's unattractive. That, that's the first description that's uh, shocking. We call this the shocking servant, right? You know, we typically think of it as the suffering servant, and Isaiah 53 certainly describes Jesus' suffering. But as Isaiah delivered it to that first audience, you get the idea that they, were, they weren't um, amazed so much by his suffering, but they're shocked by multiple aspects of who he is and what he looks like and what his mission is. Uh, it's the shocking servant. Uh, notice also he'll be rejected. Look at 53.1. Uh, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. So there's the similar idea about his appearance. Verse 3, he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Uh, you know, it's interesting to see that, uh, okay, he's unattractive and he comes, but then he's going to be despised, meaning he's going to be rejected. People are not going to buy into him as God's rescue plan. Uh, and just like uh, today, it was true in this day of Isaiah, most people, the sad reality would reject the idea that this is the Messiah. Um, interesting. Uh, just look at some of the language here. Uh, who has believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Uh, that phrase, arm of the Lord, um, uh, speaks of God's power to act and deliver, God's working to bring his salvation. That's what that language indicates. And we say, well, upon whom has it been revealed? Right? Who, who's bringing the power of the Lord? And then we read the description, a shoot, a sprout. You know what those are. I mean, we just came through springtime. Those are those little buds that poke off of your tree that uh, don't do anything, but suck life-giving nutrients from the parts of the tree that need them, right? And uh, that's the description of this great Messiah, right? This great servant is going to be like these little shoots and these little sprouts. They're unwanted, annoying little shoots that grow where they're not supposed to be. 
And then again, we see he has no form, right? No adornment, no appearance. Uh, he was nothing to look at even before he was beat up. He wasn't particularly good looking. He would not have made, uh, like I said, the Time Magazine, Most Beautiful People edition. Uh, he wouldn't be on the front cover of a book. A publisher wouldn't want to put that photograph there. Uh, no adornment, right? No flashiness. Uh, now contrast that with, with the religious leaders of Jesus' day who, who had these long robes and the phylacteries and all the garb that said, I'm important, right? And, and they actually even had um, things they would wear that would make noise. So if the Pharisees were coming, you would hear them so that you could prepare the way, right? For, and uh, that's not who we have here. No, no royal robe, no crown, as we'll find out only a crown of thorns. And the result of all this was he was rejected, right? He did not hold him in high regard. There was no respect. Uh, look at the next verse. He was despised and abandoned. That word despised means of little worth, of little value. Uh, the Jews, of course, despised and rejected the Messiah. Even some of his followers, uh, think of the 12, right? Even some of them abandoned Christ. In fact, in fact, on the day of his crucifixion, how many disciples were with him? Just one. Just one. Remember, only John was at the cross. Everybody else had run away. So, um, so right, and, and, and we move on here, right? He's a man of sorrows. He understands suffering. The, the word pains there refers to physical and mental pain. Uh, interesting, that word suffering is unique. It's not just the normal word for suffering. It means sickness resulting from a severe beating. So there's like suffering, which is just anything that, that's hard and, and hurtful to me, right? But Isaiah picks this one special word, suffering, but it's a unique suffering. It's, it's, a, it's an illness. It's a sickness that happens because someone has beaten you to the point that you're physically ill from what's happened. And again, now what does that do? That, that tells us that the marred description, the being despised, the being rejected, the, the shock of people uh, seeing him, that that's not just because he wasn't particularly good looking. It's because he was beat to the point that he was ill and sick. Look at the next part of the verse there. Like a veiling of faces from him. People refuse to look at him, right? They, they hide their face. Being so despised and we did not hold him in high regard. And uh, we adjust our glasses and we look back at the text and we say, Mr. Isaiah, are you sure this is the hope for Israel and even for the world? Remember what the crowd said in Luke 23, away with this man, release Barabbas. You know, the sad reality in, in Jesus' day, it's the same reality today. Most people will reject Christ. His own people did. And people continue to reject him today. Let's not forget, especially right now when we have prime um, evangelistic opportunity that Jesus said, uh, the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. And that doesn't mean we shouldn't try. We shouldn't minister. We should, shouldn't give up. All right. We should, we should, we should do all those things, but we ought not be surprised when most of the people we talk to say, eh, I'm going to go watch the Mavs. Eh, I'm going to go check out the Rangers. What's for lunch? You know, I'm going to pull up Fox News. You know, 
right? That, that's going to be the attitude of many people. They just don't care. Uh, so he's a rejected servant. And, and now, again, think about this in, in, uh, in Daniel's day, the, the day that Isaiah is writing to. And they're, they're, they want to go home, right? They want to be delivered. And you wonder, is, is part of the rejection from the original audience, because they're, they've, they've heard Cyrus is going to let him go. And, and you know how that is, right? When all of a sudden your life gets a lot better from your affliction, uh, sometimes it's like, well, maybe I'm not going to spend quite as much time talking to God or leaning on him or whatever, because you feel better, right? Life's gotten better. And, and so sometimes that dependence lessens. I don't know. Maybe that was part of why they, uh, they did that. Okay. So he'll be unattractive. He'll be rejected. Thirdly, he will bear the sins of people. Now, now, this is what Isaiah has been getting at all along. The people that are in captivity have two deliverance needs. They need to be delivered geographically and physically from the Babylonians and brought back to the land of Israel and, and repopulate Jerusalem and rebuild the thing. And, and that's what we've seen Isaiah talk about most of all up until our, our verse here. But remember, all along the way, as God says, hey, you're going to come back and I'm going to restore you and, and things are going to be great, that God has pointed out several times, as uh, we saw at the very end of, um, well, uh, let, let's just let's just look at it. It's the end of chapter 48, right? Remember back in chapter 48, you're coming home and the Holy One's going to deliver you and everything's going to be great. And, and uh, uh, right, you're, you're coming back to the land. And then at the very end, chapter 48, verse 22, God says, oh, by the way, but there's no peace for the wicked. And he's not talking about Babylonians or Assyrians or bad guys there. He's talking about his people. He's saying, you're going to come back. You're going to restore Jerusalem. You're going home and you're going to rebuild the temple. And But you're still not going to have peace because your heart hasn't changed. So now as this is built up, as we have climbed uh, a few more meters of the great Mount Everest and we get to the summit and we can look and we can see the beauty of God's plan, we say, ah, this is what has been needed. What has been needed all along is not just physical geographic deliverance from a foreign nation. What's needed is spiritual deliverance from a hard and stubborn and sinful heart. And only the servant can do that. Look with me at verses four and following. Uh, and again, I'm going to I'm going to read a little bit differently here. OK, uh, Nasby says, surely our griefs he himself bore. Listen, let me I'm going to read you from uh, the Hebrew text here. OK, so it's a little bit different, but you can follow along. However, he himself, it, it, however, in light of the fact that he's rejected, he himself bore our suffering and he carried our pains. Yet we ourselves assumed him to be violently struck, beaten down by God, and humiliated. See, what Isaiah is saying is, he's saying this man is God's plan to rescue the people from their sins. But when we saw him and his appearance and his uh, beatings and his rejection, our conclusion was God was punishing him for some horrible thing. This, this, this is some guy that really needs to get put back in line. And we missed it, right? Look at the next verse. But he himself was pierced for our crimes or our transgressions, being crushed for our sins. 
The chastisement that resulted in our welfare was upon him. And by his wounds, healing comes to us. All of us, like sheep, we have wandered. Each man to his own way. We have turned aside. But Yahweh, and and read there the personal name of God, but Yahweh has caused to fall upon him the sin of all of us. And that little phrase, all of us, the way Isaiah writes it, it, it brings a bracketing to this section. He's emphasizing all of us, all of us, all of us. All of us have wandered and all of our sins have fallen on him. Okay, so again, we have this emphatic start, right? Uh, he bore our suffering. He carried our pains. Looking back to verse 3, uh, he himself, we, we get more insight here as to why he's in the state that he's in. Why is he suffering? The text tells us because he himself bears our suffering and carries our pain. And, and again, if you were reading this as a Jew, you would recognize those are Levitical terms. These are sacrificial terms. It's not like, you know, some sort of, um, you know, metaphorical carrying of our sins. But the language here is that of something we all know because we know our Old Testaments. It's the language of substitution. This is substitutionary atonement language, meaning just as the animals uh, came in place of the people of Israel, their blood, their sacrifices to allow the people to live for their sins. So now the servant comes bearing their sin, bearing their shame as their substitute. But notice their assumption. The Israelites assumed that the sufferings and the pains of the servant were the result of this man being under the condemnation of God. Did you catch that? They, they don't see. And that's why if you, we think again with the New Testament, what is, who led the mob to crucify Jesus? Romans? It was the Jews. It was his own people, right? Now, now the Romans conspired, certainly. But they were the ones saying, this is not only not the Messiah, this is some threat to our religion. This is, this is some bad person that, uh, that is out to undo uh, what we believe, right? He blasphemes, right? Who said, who can forgive sins but God alone? The Pharisees said, right? And they were right. Because the Messiah claimed to forgive sin. And so they saw this as a, a blaspheming threat to the Jewish religion. And so when they see him prophesied in, in this state, Isaiah is saying, well, their, their first shot is not, hey, the deliverer. Their first shot is, yeah, yeah. That man is under God's affliction, God's condemnation. And notice the contrastive here, right? But, but he himself actually was pierced for our transgressions, right? He was crushed for our sins. Notice the language, chastisement, punishment that results in our welfare. By his wounds, healing comes to us. And again, this is substitution language. This is uh, the, the servant standing in the place of sinners to bear their iniquities, Listen to a commentator here. The very things that made us think of him of of no account are the things for which we ought to honor him. Because it is for our sake that he is enduring them. 
Part of the shock of recognition is due to the typical ancient Near Eastern understanding of the source of suffering, right? If a person is suffering, it's because he or she has done something to deserve it. But if a person is smitten, it's because he or she is a sinner. But this man has been stricken because we are sinners. That's, that's the message being brought here. Okay, so we see the doctrine of substitution uh, here in all of this. Look, look at the next part of the verse. It says, uh, his wounds, right? He is pierced for our transgression. Uh, pierced, uh, that, that, that word, that word actually alludes to the crucifixion, right? That being pierced through, uh, being a reference to Roman crucifixion. Now, the salvation being addressed here is not the salvation from a foreign people, right? We talked about this. We're not talking about Assyrians and Babylonians and leaving their land. It's not a political salvation. It's not even a circumstantial or physical salvation. It is a salvation from sin. Um, And notice this. Look, Look back at the text. All of us like sheep have wandered each to his own way. We've all turned aside. But God himself has done this. And this is this is one of those things where if you're new to Christianity, you, you read this and you go, I can understand God saying, okay, human beings messed it up. The thing with Adam and Eve didn't work out. Okay, what's plan B? Well, I guess you got to go down there, Jesus, and fix all this. But what we're reading here is that this was God's plan from the beginning. That this He was the one to bring this about and to work salvation. The only hope for salvation is a servant who will be sin-bearing. Uh, Paul writes it in one verse in 2 Corinthians. God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin in our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Okay, so he's unattractive, he'll be rejected, and yet he will bear the sins of people. Notice, fourthly, he will be punished, though he is innocent. He'll be punished, though he is innocent. Look at verse uh, 7 says that, but he was oppressed, he was oppressed, but it was he who was submitting himself. Now, that's a little bit different than what your Bible says. Nasby says he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. That's true, but uh, again, uh, translating some of these, these difficult passages here, he was oppressed, but it was he who was submitting himself, meaning the servant was the one submitting to the oppression, yet he did not open his mouth like a sheep being brought to slaughter, or like a, a you is dumb before its shearers, so he never opened his mouth. Yes, he's oppressed. Yes, he's afflicted. But what we're seeing here is that he's innocent, though he's being punished. He's submitting to this, um, though he is not worthy of it. And notice the reference to the animals of the sacrificial system. Uh, you know, what, what did, uh, you know, the, the little lamb they would bring in, the bull, the goat, What did those animals do to deserve their sacrifice in the nation of Israel? Yeah, nothing at all. And in fact, that was the point, right? The point was to go find a a good-looking, unblemished, clean animal to emphasize the the cleanliness, the the righteousness even, the the innocence of this animal. And uh, and yet that's, that's what we're saying here is that Jesus voluntarily comes, puts himself in the place as the substitute. And uh, and you remember, just like that, that dumb animal is silent before its neck is slit, 
Jesus doesn't answer his accusers. And you remember Pilate at one point says, what's wrong with you? Do you not know that I have power to let you go or make you die? And and that's one time Jesus does talk. What does he say? Yeah, you, you wouldn't have that power unless my father gave that to you. Um, so he's silent, right? He, 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 and again, the, the parallelism here is, is incredible. Remember, we're reading this with New Testament information, and so we know how it plays out. The Old Testament folks that are listening to this, they're going, huh, like a sheep before it shears. And they're going, ah, that kind of sounds like what we do in Leviticus, because that's the point. This servant is taking the place of millions of animal sacrifices that have happened. And he is the one to whom all those sacrifices look forward to. All right, where are we here? Look back at the text. Because of oppression and judgment, he was seized. And his generation who considered, because he was caught off from the land of the living, because of the crime of my people, a blow, a stroke came to him, right? Oppression and judgment refers to the unjust treatment the servant received. His generation refers to his offspring, right? In a culture where most thought of children as being a blessing from God and a lack of children being a curse, that was the worldview, the fact that the servant died without children was thought to be a sure sign of God's curse upon his life. He was cut off from the land of the living, right? Uh, he was He was sent away, though he was innocent. Notice the description. Even though all that was true, that happened to him. Why? Because of his own crimes? No. But because of the crimes of my people, right? A blow came to him. Let's see. What does the NASB say here? It says, um, he says, he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. So again, we see substitution, right? Bad things come to him, not because of his own uh, uh, problems, but because of the problems of the people. The stroke comes to him. He's cut off because of the crimes of his people. Look at the next verse. His verse nine. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was a was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit found in his mouth. That's kind of just a riddle. We go, okay. So he 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 was with a rich man when he died, but he was sent to a grave of prisoners, right? And we go, what is that all about? Well, really, we have to wait to the New Testament to, to figure out how all that comes together. When, uh, of course, Joseph Arimathea in Matthew chapter 27, uh, we, we read about that, right? Okay, so the point is he's punished, though he is innocent. Okay, look at verses 10 and 11. But the Lord was pleased to crush him. I just just stop right there and, and let that let that sink in. Um, if you're a parent or a grandparent, you know that the last thing in the world you can imagine is inflicting pain on your children or grandchildren. And we're not talking about you know a spanking here. We're not talking about discipline, right? We're talking about strangling the life out of your own offspring. And I've always thought that that's kind of a hard verse to swallow. I, 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 can, I can understand God allowed it. God tolerated it. Uh, the Father worked it out. 
But it says here he was pleased to crush his son. And I would suggest to you that that is absolute ludicrous thinking without the next verse. If it ended there, we'd go, what kind of God is this? I'm not sure I want to serve him. Look at this. The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. What's the next word? If. Okay. The if is what makes this the wisdom of God and not sort of some sort of sadistic insanity. The if. God was pleased to crush his son if the son was willing to be an offering. In the plan and wisdom of God, um, the son and the father decide this will be the plan, right? If he would render himself as a guilt offering. And if he would do that, what would happen? He would see his offspring, right? Remember, they thought, you know, he was cursed because he died with no offspring. Well, the reality is this servant is going to have many, many, many followers, isn't he? He will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. So, again, this is not Satan's plan. This is not misfortune. This is not bad luck. This is not plan B. God's plan from the beginning was to crush the servant, a fatal wound. We see it alluded to in Psalm 2, in Psalm 22. Um, this is the first person of the Trinity crushing the second person. This is why Jesus will say on the cross, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Now, now notice, what is a guilt offering? Did you catch that? All this hinges on that word if. If he would be a guilt offering. Uh, just write down Leviticus 5 and 6. Leviticus 5 and 6, where we read that the guilt offering was a special type of sin offering. It was a sacrifice. You need to get this. <laughs> you need to get this. There's a reason he put it like this. It's a sacrifice that makes atonement for sin. Now, what's interesting is this. Nowhere in Israel's history is a man ever said to be an offering for sin. It's always an animal. And they're offered every day, over and over, violation after violation, day after day, year after year. But this servant, the Messiah, he will offer himself as a sacrifice for sin. He will be the atoning sacrifice. He will absorb the wrath and punishment of God for sin. And as Hebrews will tell us, he will do it once and then sit down. Having accomplished atonement for sin once and for all. So God the Father is willing to crush God the Son if the Son will step into the place of animals that temporarily handled this, but as Hebrews tell us, their blood is not ultimately sufficient to atone for sin, is it? It takes the Son of God. See, God is willing to crush his own son because he has a greater good in mind, the atonement and salvation of his people. And the result, look at the next verse, he will see his offspring, right? He will, see his, he will see his descendants. He will lengthen days, right? He will have a long life. 
um, and the desire of Yahweh will be successful in his hand. This is the point. The servant will be successful to fulfill the plan of God and atone for sin. Uh, look at the next verse there. He says, um, as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. This is interesting now. Okay, What did he call him that we haven't seen before? Verse 11, by his knowledge, the what? Righteous. Why is that significant? There's one. There's only one righteous. Okay. Think about the context. We're talking about substitution, and substitution has two sides to it, doesn't it? Right. There, there's the God made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin in our place. Well, we've seen that in Isaiah 53. Right. That that's. The servant takes on my sin and bears my sin, and and he's punished instead of me. What's the other side of substitution? So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He gets our sin, but we get his righteousness. Okay, So that's why righteousness is so important here. It's the righteous one, my servant, and here it is, will justify the many. You can't have justification without what? Righteousness. Justification is what? Justification is God looking at the sinner and saying, not guilty, but righteous. Or justified. Saying saying justified is, is that legal declaration, right? Not guilty, but righteous. So you can't have a righteous, no uh, non-guilty verdict without some sort of imputation. There's the word, right? Imputation. Of, of Christ's very righteousness to the sinner who lacks it. So God made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness in God of God in him. The believer gets the Messiah's righteousness. The Messiah gets the believer's sin, right? He's a saving servant, right? He atones for sin as a guilt offering, so that we can be declared righteous. Okay? We've got a couple more things we need to talk about, but we're out of time, so we'll leave you with that glorious thought, right? Um, and let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that in your amazing plan, uh, you made you made this happen, that the servant, your own son, the Lord Jesus Christ, would come to die as a substitute for our sin, bearing sin, that was our own and that you were you were pleased you were honored we might say to put your son in that position where he would be afflicted and ultimately killed if he could bear our iniquities and if his his righteousness could be transferred to our account so that we might be declared righteous in his sight lord we know these things uh, Many of us have learned these things long ago and, and know them very well, but would you just strike us again today with the wonder and amazement that we might be humble and thankful to you that uh, you were pleased to afflict and ultimately kill your son so that we might be the righteousness of God in him. We're grateful in Jesus' name. Amen.